Hello again. Today we'll look at chapter 10 of Lewis' work on miracles. Uh, Lewis has already shown that there's nothing about nature that renders her safe from miracles. Is there anything, though, about God that render, renders nature safe from miracles? This is the first of, of three chapters wherein Lewis will attempt to answer this. We'll look at the, the first chapter this week and the second two of those next week. And then the following week, we'll see Lewis shift from a kind of general defense of the possibility of the miraculous to a specific and positive argument for particular miracles. Lewis begins chapter 10 by making the observation that religions like, like Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism might very well be able to survive without the concept of miracles. Perhaps this is not entirely the case with Islam, but it is almost the case for each of these. At least that's, that's how Lewis puts it. That is to say, it is at least easier for them to accommodate themselves to a world that finds the miraculous implausible. But despite efforts to the contrary, this is plainly impossible with Christianity. Christianity is, as, as Lewis writes, quote, precisely the story of a great miracle. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian, end quote. Nevertheless, argues Lewis, most modern people do, do, do not have difficulties when it comes to miracles because they are fussing about a particular miracle claim. Rather, their rejection of Christian claims is, is much prior to this. Lewis writes, quote, when a man who has had only the ordinary modern education looks into any authoritative statement of Christian doctrine, he finds himself face to face with what, face -to -face with what seems to him a, a wholly savage or primitive picture of the universe. He finds that God is supposed to have a son, just as if God were a mythological deity like Jupiter or Odin. He finds that this son is supposed to have come down from heaven as if God were, had a palace in the sky from which he had sent down his son like a parachutist, end quote. Lewis later goes on, quote, everything seems to possess a conception of reality which the increase of our knowledge has been steadily refuting for the last 2,000 years and which no honest man in his senses could return to today, end quote. Uh, but before Lewis responds directly, he anticipates a certain reaction from his interlocutors, though. That, that is, as soon as the Christian moves to defend the faith uh, through constant qualification and redescription, you know, oh, it's not all that primitive when you really get it, uh, it is difficult for the skeptic not to feel a little bit of disdain, a kind of ruffledness of their feathers at the unprincipled act of instrumentalizing the sacred powers of the human mind in order to render intelligent what is clearly childish. Uh, as one atheist I read described it once, uh, all religious jujitsu amounts only to so many volumes describing the ornateness of the emperor's clothes. You know, read Aquinas, I've got better things to do, thank you very much. <laughs> Lewis, is, Lewis is sympathetic with this reaction, actually, and this is partly due to his own story of movement away from this sort of thinking. Nevertheless, it is in this section of the book that Lewis notes the debt he owes to the skeptic who trained him to think in an adult way. But then Lewis goes on to perform a wonderful rhetorical move. It really is masterful. He goes on to say, basically, you know, well, you're right. I'm going to do exactly the thing you thought I was going to do. I'm going to explain a bunch of things, but not for the reason you think I'm going to do it. As the kids say these days, Lewis is kind of going meta here. He writes, quote, now, I have a great deal of sympathy with that sickness in context, revulsion at sort of theological excuses. Uh, I have a great deal of sympathy with that sickness, and I freely admit that modernist Christianity has constantly played just the game of which the patient skeptic accuses it. 
But I also think there's a kind of explaining that is not explaining away. In one sense, I'm going to do just what the skeptic thinks I'm going to do. That is, I'm going to distinguish what I regard as the core or real meaning of the doctrines from that in their expression, uh, core and real meaning of the doctrines from that in their expression, which I regard as inessential or possibly even capable of being changed without damage. But then what will drop away from the real meaning under my treatment will precisely not be the miraculous. It is the core itself, the core scrapped as clean or in as, uh, of inessentials as we can scrape it, which remains for me entirely miraculous, supernatural, nay, if you will, primitive or even magical, end quote. Lewis develops this in three claims. First, what we think is, dist what we think is distinct from what we imagine. When I say that I live in Dallas, I might always imagine a particular portion of Dallas that the term evokes spontaneously and reflexively for me, like this you know, weird little restaurant ball that's in downtown Dallas that everybody around here knows about. But I know that that mental picture, you know, the Jolly Green Giant building or that restaurant ball is not Dallas, even though the term kind of automatically conjures this associated image. I know that the thing itself is something that exceeds. Dallas exceeds that imagination that I have. Second, so that's claim one. The second claim, second, it is sometimes the case that someone could even imagine something that actually doesn't go with the image or with the thing itself, but still have the thing in their mind by means of that image. For instance, let's, let's give an example here. Uh, if I said, if I, again, I'm talking about Dallas, and you started to think about a particular, and the image that spontaneously arose in your mind was a particular basketball team called the Dallas Astronauts, uh, your associated image with Dallas might be wrong, but you can still generally be referring to Dallas as such even if it comes with that false image. It, it, as it happens, there's no such thing as a basketball team called the Dallas Astronauts, not that I'm aware of at least. Uh, uh, but you could, you could hear the word Dallas, wrongly imagine something you, for whatever reason, had the impression that existed, and yet still be thinking about the actual thing Dallas in association with that false image. So, so one, he's making uh, a claim that there's a difference between the thing and what I imagine relative to the thing. And then two, there's, you can even be wrong about the association between an image and a thing versus you can be wrong about an image relative to a thing without being wrong about the thing absolutely and definitionally. So those are the two claims he's made so far. Lewis' third claim is that, quote, anyone who talks about things that cannot be seen or touched or heard or the like must inevitably talk as if they could be seen or touched or heard, must talk of complexes and repressions as if desires could be really tied up in bundles or shoved back, of growth and development as if institutions could really grow like trees or unfold like flowers, of, of energy being released as if it were an animal being let out of a cage, end quote. So three claims. One, what, what we are thinking about is distinct from our imagination of a thing. Two, we might even be thinking about a thing by means of a false imaging while still thinking about the thing itself. And then three, when we're talking about things we can't imagine, we nevertheless inevitably try to approximate them in the language of the imagination. 
Uh, it is with these convictions that Lewis is going to try and help the skeptic understand, Christian, skeptic understand Christian claims. When we say that Jesus is the son of the father, we should not think that the divine son is a son in precisely the same way that we are, that we are sons of our own fathers. Rather, we're in the world of analogy at this point. The key point is that this is to be expected. It's not an accommodation, but a pretty natural part of the process of talking about the kinds of realities that Christianity names. Uh, to make that clearer, it might help to clarify what the alternative would be. One might ask something like, well, if, it, you know, if these things are just an image of something else, why not drop the image altogether? Lewis' point is that this is impossible, and that those who think they are doing so aren't actually doing so. He writes, quote, that people who recommend it the people who recommend it have not noticed that when they try to get rid of man-like, or as they're called anthropomorphic images, they merely succeed in substituting images of some other kind. You know, I don't believe in a personal God, says one, but I do believe in a great spiritual force. What he's not noticed is that the word force has let in all sorts of images about winds and tides and electricity and gravitation, end quote. So you see, it's not whether we have, it's not whether we will have to grasp a God in imperfect terminology, but only how we will do so. And given this, Lewis goes on to argue that images, uh, that images from personhood are at least better images to get at whatever, whatever is named by God. Man is the highest thing we meet in sensuous experience, Lewis writes. And, and then he goes on, quote, He has at least conquered the globe, honored but not followed virtue, achieved knowledge, made poetry, music, and art. If God exists at all, it is not unreasonable to assume that we are less unlike him than anything else we know. No doubt we are unspeakably different from him to the extent that all man-like images are false, end quote. Where does that leave us with the Bible? Working off the premise that, that philosophical definiteness is not the first priority for the believing soul, Lewis wants to show, nevertheless, that we cannot assume that the biblical authors were just primitive in their use of that, all that visceral and phenomenological language, you know, the speech about the right arm of the Lord and such. But Lewis is not denying the usefulness and the, and the goodness of this philosophical definiteness. Rather, many of the philosophical distinctions that are of importance to us arose in human discourse, at least in part, outside biblical revelation. And so those looking in biblical revelation for kind of perfect philosophical language about God will probably not find it. But nor, Lewis is want to add, will they find its denial? And this is crucial. So, so Lewis writes, quote, starting from a clear modern distinction between material and immaterial, he, uh, and in context, he's talking about kind of the, the modern literalist, he tries to find out on which side of that distinction the ancient Hebrew conception fell. He forgets that the distinction itself has been made clear only by later thought. We are often told that primitive man could not conceive pure spirit, but then neither could he conceive mere matter. A throne and a local habitation are attributed to God only at that stage where it is still impossible to regard the throne or palace uh, even of an earthly king as merely physical objects, end quote. Lewis is, is taking for granted here a, con a concept of history in which there have been significant changes in the mental habits and available categories of men throughout time. Reality is what and as it is, but man's knowledge of and relationship to reality through that, under, 
through their understanding has changed significantly through history. Uh, all talk about miracles then needs to take account of this. However, it is precisely here that Lewis comes full circle and shows that he's not just adjusting Christianity for modern sentiments. He writes, quote, and now we come to see the difference between explaining and explaining away. It, it shows itself in two ways. One, some people, when they say a thing is met metaphorically, conclude from this that it is hardly meant at all. They rightly think that Christ spoke metaphorically when he told us to carry the cross and wrongly conclude that carrying the cross means nothing more than leading a respectable life and subscribing moderately to charities. And so Lewis goes on, quote, for me, the Christian doctrines... Uh, which are metaphorical, of which, uh, or, or which have become metaphysical with the increase of abstract thought, means something which is just as supernatural or shocking after we have removed the ancient imagery, imagery as it was before. They mean that in addition to the physical and psychophysical universe known to the sciences, there exists an uncreated and unconditioned reality which causes the universe to be, end quote. Lewis is, he argues, not explaining away because the underlying thing he is getting it to by means of images is not something that is non-miraculous, but something that is precisely miraculous. And no qualifications get rid of or negate that. Uh, the qualifications are just to make our descriptions about the underlying reality more clear. Uh, quote, we can make our speech duller, writes Lewis. We cannot make it more literal, end quote. <laughs> Uh, the second way in which we can see the difference between explaining and explaining away is in terms of the objects that we're talking about. But when we're talking about history, as Christianity often does, we still speak quite literally. But we depend upon metaphorical language when the object of our analysis cannot be known otherwise. The dual use of language is not rooted in Christian cowardliness or inconsistently then inconsistency then but in the in the fact that some object uh, some objective realities are more suited to ordinary literal speech than others moreover humans move between literal and metaphorical usages of words all the time and we know uh, when people refer uh, uh, we use terms literally and metaphorically just by looking at context it's normal for us similarly we know that they're have got to be some, some, there's got to be something metaphorical, for instance, about the idea that, that Jesus is God's son, you know, given our ordinary notion of fatherhood and sonship. But we also know that Jesus turning water into wine is literal and non-metaphorical for precisely the same reason. The underlying realities, water and wine, are available to the senses and can be spoken about quite directly. The kind of explaining that explains away is the sort that reduces all the literal miracles to metaphorical ones and all truth that is expressed in metaphor to be non-miraculous truth. Uh, you know, I haven't covered everything here and there are many reasons to revisit this chapter. Lewis' discussion of the history of human thought uh, and, and, and the precise manner in which human language is metaphorical relative to spiritual things would pay enormous dividends in all sorts of discussions. He's using the terms in a way that transcends a lot of binaries and a lot of discussions in the world of theology, philosophy, and biblical studies. I'd keep a bookmark in this chapter, and you might watch the conversations you see among contemporary folks uh, over the next few decades, uh, learn to catch up with Lewis. I think he's already arrived where a lot of conversations that are still happening need to go. Um, 
Next week, though, we'll cover the two subsequent chapters where Lewis completes this portion of his argument. I look forward to seeing you then, but for now, from one human face to another, I'll see you later.